Welcome to Brand Story Inc.'s Best of Media Company Mindset 2020 edition of the podcast. In our inaugural podcast year, we recorded approximately 50 episodes, and today I'm excited to share the best of the best thought leaders and doers that embrace a media company mindset to deliver a competitive advantage to their businesses by engaging audiences and clients all through story at a scale and scope that is on par with, well, a media publisher. The key here is that these companies aren't actually media companies. They embrace the ethos of them to connect and build business in a way that epitomizes why I launched Brand Story Inc. in the first place. On today's Best of the Media Company Mindset episode, we feature six different people from five companies. You'll hear from Christy Ross, the dynamic CEO of financial services firm Tasty Trade, the president of the Drone Racing League, Rachel Jacobson, author and legendary content marketer Andrew Davis, Stephanie Lossi and Dusty DiMercurio, who run software giant Autodesk's media publishing arm called Redshift, and finally, Andrew Bolton, the chief client officer of content measurement platform Notch. Over the next hour, I've called the best of the best excerpts from some of my favorite interview subjects and topics. I always feel extreme examples of certain philosophies and approaches can sometimes deliver the clarity and we have some awesome case studies to get your wheels turning. A common thread is each of these companies have created media entities or work with ones that instead of creating content to engage target audiences, they create communities using content that is perceived to be valuable as a unifying hub. We're going to talk origin stories, media production evolution, ROI on these ventures, as well as measurement, philosophy, production workflows, and a ton more. So let's stop talking about what I'm so excited to share and, well, share it. First up is Chicago-based Tasty Trade, the media publishing company that is akin to a digital media version of CNBC in terms of the amount of content they create on a daily basis. It's also the front door and community building arm for Tastyworks, a brokerage platform that's the primary business for which Tasty Trade was built. I connected with CEO and co-founder Christy Ross, who shared the backstory on how Tasty Trade Media Empire came to be and how it's so impactful on Tastyworks. This may be my favorite example of a non-media company becoming one to build a community that translates into a wildly successful business. So let's jump in with Christy Ross. We produce about 50 different shows, uh, all the way from beginner to advanced. Uh, the difference in our shows is that we try to make finance fun and actionable, and I think that is definitely a differentiator in what we are doing in the finance realm or the financial media realm because usually they don't hear the word fun and finance in the same mm -hmm. you know in the same sentence right uh but when you start to look at our shows it is everything from uh, I'm going to call it 201 being the beginner and 301 being the advanced. Mm -hmm. We do have a subsidiary that addresses the 101, and I can talk about some of our different companies uh, a little bit later. But when you start to look at our shows, it is a Where Do I Start series. There's our Learn Center with uh, videos and quizzes to help individuals uh, really, truly get started. Um, Mike and his whiteboard, which is a 20-something-year-old <laughs> literally drawing on a whiteboard, walking through concepts, uh, all the way to uh, our market measures, which is our data scientists and doing research uh, to present different concepts in different scenarios 
uh, providing an, a really, a, I'm going to call it a logical mechanical approach to investing. And so it really runs the spectrum from, again, I'll say beginner uh, to advanced. The, the other couple things I want to throw in there are other shows that uh, take the news, for example. Mm -hmm. We have something called Daily Dose. Yeah. And while we are not a news media company, uh, we take the news and show how to do something with that. And what I mean by that is instead of watching you know, CNBC, you say, okay, I see what's happening in the news, but what can I do in my own portfolio? And here we have a comedian who presents the news to two trading veterans, and then they talk about you know, what they can do or what they're doing in their own portfolios um, around that. And so it's really about that, that actionable side while keeping it light and real and and you know personable right uh and so the other thing is is you have a lot of banter going on throughout all of our shows and it really truly is just real people uh we talk about real trades and everything is done in in real time so this is live streaming like you said it's it's eight hours a day and we're now seven days a week actually we we expanded to saturdays and sundays with some shows because of the pandemic um but everything else is also uh, video on demand. And if I can throw in one more one more thing uh, is we we do one show that is non trading related called Bootstrapping in America, uh, and that's really the only show that I jump into and I interview CEOs and founders of companies to talk about their entrepreneurial journey, about launching their company or uh, scaling their company, uh, or just, you know, really allowing them to, to share their story. And that's sort of our way to, to give back to the entrepreneurial community. Well, I highly recommend folks, if you're listening to this and you're at a computer, uh, go to tastytrade.com and you can see, as Christy mentioned, there's 20 personalities, 50 plus shows. I mean, everything from the anatomy of a trade to daily dose to fast market. It, it's, it's the example that I turn to because um, I, I like to use extreme examples, and I think this is an extreme example of a brand who has fully embraced the media company mindset. You are a media company. Um, I, I'm curious, I would love to learn a little bit more before we dive in on the Tasty Trade. How, explain how it connects to Tasty Works and what Tasty Works is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tastyworks is an online brokerage company. Um, so, you know, without throwing all of our competitors' names out there, I mean, but it is like an E-Trade or a TD Ameritrade. Mm -hmm. um, it, but it really is, uh, I'm going to say, the technical, technological expression of everything we talk about on Tasty Trade. So our content, our media company, we uh, we teach people how to trade, how to apply and maneuver the markets, you know, apply concepts uh, live and uh, having a platform that we built that we can uh, display and have it show exactly what we're talking about in the way we're talking about in the concepts we created it is it's um it really sort of ties everything together for the customer um we have a, a quick quick little story we started uh, tasty trade back in 2011 and i'll i'll tell you we knew nothing about media jay <laughs> we all came from 
a trading and brokerage background, all of us with decades of experience in that realm. So we started a media company not knowing anything about media. Love that. You um, faked it really well before you made it. Let's just say that. Well, we, we knew our content, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so delivering the right content and the message and um, uh, really appealing to our audience without all the nuances that we probably didn't know camera angles as well and mm -hmm. we didn't know lighting as well. <laughs> um, we learned really quickly. And I think that's the one thing about entrepreneurship is you dive into something uh, and you, you figure it out, right? If it's, yeah. if it's worth doing, you, you figure it out. So, so we started actually as a media company and we tried a couple of different uh, revenue models and a couple of different things. Uh, but in short order, we ended up building trading technology um, within, within the first uh, few years of starting Tasty Trade because we wanted to display our own visual instead of somebody else's technology. And then in short order after that, we said, well, we built the front end. Why don't we just build the back end again? Because mm. we came from the mm -hmm. trading and brokerage industry, right? So so we did it all over again, sort of uh, round two, if you will. <laughs> and we, we launched a brokerage firm. Um, Can I jump in there? Um, I'm curious, because you touched on it. And it, it's interesting because if in today's day and age, at twenty, you know, going back to 2011, that was pretty visionary. Here in 2020, you would look at this and think, oh, this is a brilliant this is a brilliant content marketing extension from the Tastyworks brand, but it's actually the other way around. Tasty Trade and the media entity was the was the anchor for this. So, sh can you share the vision of how, how it started? Take us back to the the thought process back and what the what was behind the why behind launching this. Oh, absolutely. So I'm going to back all the way up to uh, you know a, a number of years ago. My co CEO Tom Sosnoff. Um, was one of the co-founders of Thinkorswim. Um, I came on as the CFO. And so Tom and I have been together for over 16 years. And uh, so we worked very closely together. And we ended up uh, really going through, you know, six mergers and acquisitions in six years. And we ended up ultimately selling the company to TD Ameritrade. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have to give credit to, to Tom because uh, he had the idea for Tasty Trade initially. Uh, he really wanted to just talk trading all day long. You know, he was thinking about what's the next phase of my life. You know, I, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, just, we just sold his baby. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, um, you know, and he is a, a trading veteran from the Chicago Board and Options Exchange floor. He has long hair, wears a beret, and is truly a serial entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, so it is it is something when you, you look back at this, the idea for Tasty Trade was initially an audio-only hmm. online squawk, you know, mm -hmm. squawk box, whatever you want to call it, right? And And when we, at the time, when we looked at prior to launching, uh, we saw what video consumption, you know, what was happening, particularly metrics around YouTube. At that time, back in 2011, it was around 24 hours of video being uploaded per minute. And so online video consumption was really starting to, to just take hold. You look now and it's, you're talking about, you know, 400 hours of right. video being uploaded every minute or more. Um, 
So we launched with video, rented an old hip hop studio all the way down to the dishes just to make sure the concept would work. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, the, the, as, as we built the, the media company, we, we actually ended up acquiring a production company just so that we could garner some expertise early on of, of just the team that knew how to run some of this stuff. So we learned a lot from that. It was a small company, but it was a, it was an acquisition almost out of the shoot. It was a year two that we acquired them. Uh, so, so that helped in the process, but the whole concept came from what is missing in this industry. And we lived it, breathed, ate it for decades and it part of the thing that was missing was the fun in finance and the actionable content and they're just really that was what was missing i think that's uh, an interesting point when you use the term actionable content because uh, i've talked about on this podcast before uh, we at teamworks we've got friends at all the major not all many of the major media companies and it's funny i i think those of us that are in the media business, um, even in 2020, up until, I would say up until COVID-19 hit, there was still this, um, despite if you looked at the dollars of digital dollars versus television dollars, which finally is in favor of digital, um, it's still heavy, heavy linear TV with digital as an afterthought. And and to be to be digital first back in 2011 and grow that, it's, Looking back, it just seems like an enormous head start. I, I, I thought, like you did back in those days, it was like, oh yeah, digital's here, digital's here. Mm-hmm. It's still not even here in some places. I mean, like some of the business companies uh, who I won't name right now that you probably compete with are still linear television first and digital as almost like an ancillary. They're getting better and they're doing it, but you being, you know, I, I think it's an interesting term, actionable content because you are so pervasive. Um, and, and a digital first mentality on your brand. You know, and it's interesting back in, I want to say it was 2012, you know, we, we started with almost eight hours of, of live programming out of the shoot. And, and it, wow. it is something, it was, it was, I'll say out of the shoot within, a, within a few months, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we did that fairly quickly. Um, but, and that's easy to do, right? Cause you have content around the markets, right? <laughs> right? right. Market hours, which was really, which was really great for us. But, um, within, I would say it was probably within the first year, year and a half, we were approached by local broadcast companies. And while we started to go down that route, and again, we didn't come from that world. So we were really sort of exploring and learning and talking to a lot of different people. Um, we took a step back and said, you know what, we don't really need to go this route. This is not the way that this is moving. This is not the, the direction or the trends that, that are moving. The thing that I'll, I'll say is I, just like you stated, I'm actually surprised that companies haven't shifted more by now. I mean, we've almost been in business now 10 years, you mm-hmm. know, it's nine years, nine and a half years. Um, that's, I would have expected people would have caught up. You know, we were only a couple of years into it and we said, yeah, you know what, why would we take a step back if that's how people are, you know, how, how right. companies, um, you know, were functioning. So we actually said no to some, some broadcast deals. Again, they were fairly small at the time. Uh, but it was, it, we just didn't need to do that. We didn't need to give up our content at that point. Instead, we went the OTT route and expanded to Roku and Amazon Fire TV and, you know, and, and, and. So, um, but I'll tell you, YouTube is probably, you know, along with our own website, 
probably some of the the best uh, distribution channels uh, as well as social media to to drive people to our content. Christy and Tasty Trade, so impressive. A wonder twin of Christie's of sorts is Rachel Jacobson, who became the president of the Drone Racing League, or the DRL as it's known, during the pandemic. And if you follow me on social media, you know I've been shining a light on Rachel and the DRL for being a disruptor brand throughout the pandemic. This former NBA executive wasted no time pivoting and creating content and sponsorship deals, taking full advantage of the gap in live programming as other leagues, quite candidly in my opinion, were caught on their heels. So let's jump in with some of the access and authenticity tips she brought from the NBA to the DRL as we dig into a league that embraces the media company mindset. When I think about just that business and what the NBA had the vision to do was everyone wants to be courtside and everyone wants to understand what they don't see with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So I think I said earlier about, you know, 99.9% of people will never go to an NBA game. So that is why when you think about content being so paramount and, you know, content is king and all those overused cliches Mm -hmm. is you have to make sure that every fan then feels like they have a courtside seat. So that's the bar that you really need to set for yourself. It's all about that view and the behind the scenes and bringing people closer to the players and their rituals, you know, the practice that Steph Curry does before he actually starts the game. Everyone's seen that documented and the, number of threes that he hits and the half court shots, all of that, when you think about, you know, where it started, it really was back, you know, a number of years ago with NBA entertainment, just feeling like the the broadcasts are great, but how do we build a business and, you know, wrap sponsors around it? Mm -hmm. When I was on the partnership side is who doesn't want to bring something to their customers that nobody else gets. So that's why there's so much content that was gated um, for different communities when you thought about, again, making them feel like they have that courtside seat. So growing up with that mentality, um, it's definitely what I see here at DRL. I'm like, wait a second. So we were at, at, like, we did a race in Singapore and we, flew drones around a palace in Europe and what like where's the footage like where's the footage (laughs) that we can dust off right now Mm -hmm. you know and show and and the pilots you know as I am meeting them in you know zoom chats and and other things they have great stories like how they got into drones and why they fly what they love about the community And then seeing it through my 10-year-old's eyes when I told them mommy has a new job, we didn't know, you know, they didn't know anything about drone racing. They knew drones were cool. So I immediately, you know, I had that going for me with this new job. Um, But literally within two weeks, they had watched um, one of the re-airs that we had streamed of the 2019 season. They quickly studied up on the pilots. I have a Fluxy fan. I have a Vanover (laughs) fan. This is not a hard sport to 
to learn and understand. And we don't expect the commitment of hours and hours that you have to actually put in. So when we think about the content and bringing our fans closer, I look at how do we bring it, where they want it, when they want it, how they want it, Mm -hmm. on their phones, on TV, through social, all of that. And then what content is performing the best? And like I said, who doesn't want to see Vanover, you know, who, by the way, flies planes, Mm. and he's also one of our DRL pilots. So these fun facts and information that we could be sharing, it really then builds that connection with, um, you know, our millions of fans and, and the fans that we don't have right now that I'm going after. And man, has she been going after it. I want to segue here into the disruptor mindset, which I believe Rachel embraces and exudes. I underscore this point because content studios for brands and organizations that aren't actually media companies require, in my opinion, this level of vision and cultural ethos. Let's listen to Rachel the disruptor. So what's so nice when I think about, you know, being a disruptor is I like to break rules in a good way. I've (laughs) grown up with the mentality of step into traffic, be first, innovate. When you think about David Stern's vision and Adam Silver and whether it's business or philanthropic initiatives, at the end of the day, it's how do we use the best minds to really put together the best programming and opportunities um, to build incredible businesses and cultures, by the way, because the people are so integral to the output, you know, and, and especially during these times, um, starting a new job during a pandemic, literally meeting 100% of my team virtually oh. and being able to, you know, adapt really quickly to everyone's situation and also anxiousness, just as we're thinking about doing things differently. So, you know, my mentality, which won't be too different from stakes in the ground that we put at DRL is you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, especially now there's incomplete data. When are live events coming back? Yeah. When is this happening? You know, there there's no crystal ball and even people that are putting dates out there, they're getting moved. Mm -hmm. So with all of that said, you can't sit back and wait for the data to be perfect. You're going to have to take risks and make bets. And that's where I've seen us really pivot and win in these past several weeks, which will blend into several months. And even as I'm sitting here today, talking with arenas and stadiums about bringing a drone race to their building, which by the way, has not had sports or concerts or anything. Mm -hmm. They want to be first movers in terms of when government restrictions are lifted and Cuomo. And, you know, when you look at New York and California right now, when you have the top leaders saying sports community, we want to support you in a safe way to bring something back even without fans 
we want to be part of that discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's so much of what, you know, we're doing right now is having that mentality of not resting on any laurels or successes, um, particularly for me and thinking about how do I take this incredible team and staff and continue to motivate them, you know, drumming up new things and making sure that we are just eyes wide open about what is going on and knowing what resources and ideas that we have, how do we blend those together to bring, you know, just incredible new opportunities to our avid fans, you know, that have known us. But even like you said, like you saw a little bit of what we were doing. It looks like you've now watched, I heard. Um, And in a couple of weeks, you probably feel like, you know, you're the drone going zero to 90 (laughs) on our business. And, you know, hopefully this is how we've hooked someone to say, you know, I like what this sport about. They're cutting edge. They're exciting. It's multi-generational. And, you know, as you know, we think about whether people are with their kids, their parents, their siblings, whatever it is right now, it's something that they can tune into. From one disruptor, we segue to another of my all-time favorites. Andrew Davis is one of the hottest keynote speakers on content marketing, and he's a best-selling author. His current YouTube series called The Loyalty Loop is much-watched stuff, yet I still recommend his 2012 book, Brandscaping, which is aged very well and gets at the core of the media company mindset as well as anything I've ever read. It's called Brandscaping. Look it up. One of his stories in that book and his past keynotes is how Tractor Supply embraced the media company mindset with the chicken whisperer. I know, hang on with me here. Quick context. In the book Brandscaping, Andrew has this simple yet awesome illustration of a tree with a bunch of branches that underscores what he calls fractal marketing. It's a path to go from a broad marketing segment to an ultra niche segment within a segment. In this example, Tractor Supply was able to use fractal marketing to align with the backyard poultry enthusiast. So let's dive in on Tractor Supply's fun success story that I'm hopeful will create some sparks for your brand. Tractor Supply is a great example of a brand who is courageous enough to take a note on that tree because it really does take courage to do this. Because hypothetically, you're saying no to some people by mm-hmm. finding this note, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so let me explain Tractor Supply. I mean, Tractor Supply, uh, if you don't know it, is like the Walmart of the agricultural world. You can go in and, like, you know, you can buy some Skittles and you can buy all. <laughs> a riding lawnmower and you can get a bunny rabbit um, and uh, some overalls, like all in one shopping spree. So it's really, it's really a fun place to go. Uh, And it's a really big business. I think last year they probably did about $7 billion in revenue. And most of the tractor supplies are located in suburban metropolitan areas. Um, And funnily enough, tractor supply has very high awareness. Like if there's a tractor supply near you, most people in that area, if you say, hey, have you ever heard of Tractor Supply? They'll say, oh, yeah, that's that place down on whatever street, you know? Mm-hmm. They all know it, but if you've never been in a Tractor Supply, you're very unlikely to go in um, unless you have a very specific moment of inspiration, an instant where you need to go into a Tractor Supply or you've already been in there before. So they have high awareness, but they needed to get new people who know about it to come in the store. And as they started trying to figure out how to do this, 
they decided they can't just market to everyone. They can't just get more people aware of what they have because they don't seem to be interested. So what they did was they actually looked for opportunities to find something that would get people interested in tractor supply. And as they started to do their research, they came across this guy named Andy Schneider. Now, Andy Schneider is like, he's from Atlanta. He's, uh, he's you know, kind of a middle-aged guy with two young kids. And uh, his kids came home one day <laughs> and said, hey, Dad, uh, you know, where do eggs come from? You know, like the eggs they eat mm-hmm. for breakfast. And he, he said, well, come on. Like, you must know they come from chickens. Uh, and then they were like, well, where do chickens come from? And he was like, oh, my gosh. Okay, <laughs> we've got to do something about this. So Andy decided to buy some baby chickens and some eggs and hash them to teach the kids about raising, you know, chickens and, and you know, the, the farm life, even though he lived in metropolitan Atlanta. And as he started doing this, he realized that no one was teaching suburban people how to raise just a few chickens. So he was, he was desperate for information and decided, you know what, I'm going to start uh, teaching other people how to do this. So he actually wrote a book called The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens. Uh, he's known as the Chicken Whisperer. He even started a radio show. I mean, the Chicken time. Whisperer, how great is that? I mean, it's <laughs> awesome. It's awesome. If you, if, you, if, you, if you have some time and you're listening, check out chicken, The Chicken Whisperer. Just Google him. You'll find him in two seconds. Uh, he started with an AM radio show on traditional media in Atlanta, like every Saturday. And the show was a hit. You know, people were calling up saying, oh, I want chickens or I have two chickens. And I don't know what kind of house to build for them. Uh, and, you know, the show from the, the radio station standpoint wasn't a massive success. So uh, they kind of, after a few months, said, Andy, you know, you may need to find another place to do this show. And Andy decided to do it online. So the Chicken Whisperer started an online radio show on Blog Talk Radio. Um, and by the way, he, he went from just doing it on Saturdays to doing it four days a week for two hours a day. So from noon to two, every single day, four days a week, you can go online and listen to the Chicken Whisperer live radio. Uh, and he has guests, like a, he has a, a chicken doctor that's on every Monday. And, you know, he has, he has, it's amazing. By the way, one, one day Oprah Winfrey called into his chicken show because she's a backyard poultry fan. Amazing. Uh, and so he, he amassed this massive following of essentially suburban you know, uh, uh, people who were really interested in raising chickens and interested in backyard poultry. Uh, and, and like, if you check out his Facebook page, he's got over 200,000 fans. Um, and he ended up publishing a, a magazine, a digital magazine, uh, that has 60,000 paid subscribers. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is when all of a sudden tractor supply says, Hey, wait a second. Like maybe we can inspire people in our suburban metropolitan areas to, to get into backyard poultry, we'll call the chicken whisperer. We'll ask him if he'll, he can do some videos for us on how to teach people to, uh, you know, to, to raise their own chickens. So the chicken whisperer agrees because he's all about trying to teach people how to raise their own chickens. And the, the, the fans love it. The new consumers love it. And uh, Tractor Supply has this thing called Chick Days. This is a long-winded story. No, you still there, Jay? I'm here. It's good. I like it. <laughs> so they... They have this thing called Chick Days. I feel like is, we're now in This around, American Life right now. It's fantastic. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Every April uh, around Easter time, um, Tractor Supply runs a promotion where you can come and for like 99 cents, you can buy a little baby chick 
and then you you, you know it costs like seven hundred dollars to keep that baby chick alive. <laughs> it's a great business model, that right? Uh, and and people start asking in the Facebook group if chick, if the Chicken Whisperer is going to come to their tractor supply for chick days. And tractor supply says, "Wow, like this looks like it's working. If we can get all of those consumers that have never come into a chicken, uh, you know, a tractor supply to come in because the Chicken Whisperer is going to be there. Let's try it." So the first the first year they did ten cities, ten different stores, and around Chick Days they offered a four hour workshop with. Uh, with Tractor Supply and the Chicken Whisperer on how to get your own chickens. And all of his fans brought their friends and family. The first store they did, I, I can't remember where it was. I want to say it was in Alabama. Um, but they they filled up the store to the point at which it became a fire hazard, and they had to shut it down. Um, so they learned from that. They, at, at every other store is successively, you know, it seemed to get bigger and bigger. They rented a, a, a VSW hall to do one of them. Uh, they rented some mobile trucks for it, uh, and it turns out that it is so successful that the, at the end of the day, someone who is brand new to Tractor Supply has never been to Tractor Supply before, but buys one of those chicks on chick day from uh, you know with with uh, with the ass- assistance of the chicken whisperer, spends eleven times as much as the actual uh, average Tractor Supply customer. Wow! And even just the chicken feed alone from one of those stores uh, is worth about $125 million over the course of about 10 years, which is the, the expected lifespan of a chicken if you keep them alive that, all that long. So the, from a revenue standpoint, it's unbelievably successful. And Tractor Supply didn't start, didn't stop with just the, you know, suburban-loving, uh, you know, chicken uh, in backyard poultry enthusiasts. They then went into other fractals. They jumped around the tree and found you know, 4-H fair uh, kids was another one. Like, if you're raising a pig for the 4-H fair, they created a whole tree for you. Uh, and and they went into uh, rabbits, and they went into equestrian stuff. So for Tractor Supply, this strategy has built their business. It has been unbelievably successful for them. But it, it takes some courage. You've got to choose a node and stick with it and commit to make it really successful. By now, if you and I have any level of simpatico, you're thinking, that's pretty cool. Any other examples like that? I'm so glad you asked. Let's go back to Andrew Davis, this time with an unexpected case study from the Lone Star State. I've seen some really interesting ones like um, uh, the the Beef Council of Texas. (laughs) I love this. See, this Uh, is why we have you on. We'd never know about the Beef Council of Texas. Uh, I, I, I gotta get. I gotta make sure I get it right. But uh, basically, they did a um, uh, a show, a re- basically a reality show uh, called Beef Loving Texans. Um, and first of all, it's fantastic. But they basically, um, you, you know, partnered with this woman who's a chef, but also a, an unbelievable barbecue enthusiast. And you can picture any Food Network show that this would be around, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and she basically toured around Texas deconstructed the recipes for some of the best barbecue in Texas and created a reality series around it. And it was awesome. I mean, really, really well done. What's even more important is the, uh, the, the beef council attributes like a, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, so don't quote me, but it's, it's like a 50 or $60 million increase over the 12 months that they did the show um, in sales of beef as a result of the show. I mean, Um, to your point, it's like, what are we missing? Maybe we're just, 
well, you're the smart guy. You get paid the big bucks to do all these keynotes. But w- what are we missing? Like, p- uh, why is it courage? What's what's the holdback? There's so many oh, examples of this in the marketplace. That- well, I, you know, I think the the holdback is the fear that it's not going to deliver on revenue. So yes, does it take courage? Yeah, it takes courage to to decide to make a TV show you know, uh, about looking for the best barbecue, you know? And by the way, I just looked it up. It's called Barbecue Quest, nice, BB Quest. Um, and season two is streaming now, if you want to go check it out. Awesome. Um, but uh, I think the fear is that, hey, we're going to invest a lot. We're going to put a lot of resources on this. We're very excited about it. But is it going to drive revenue? And I think the, the challenge comes down to the CMOs of today, the marketing executives of today, really challenging their teams and themselves to start passing this to revenue. How are we going to measure the impact of this? And I think one of the reasons, um, you know, the, 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 if, I, if I can go back to the loyalty loop at a moment of commitment, you know, I actually don't think it's that hard to measure the impact on revenue. Like, do uh, Food and Family Magazine, which is Craft, uh, Craft Magazine that they've been publishing for 20-something years, they measure the impact of their magazine based on the subscriber revenue versus non-subscriber revenue. So basically, the question they ask themselves is, should we keep publishing this magazine? Because it, 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 what's the value to us? Mm-hmm. And basically, every time they run the report, it says, hey, if you get the magazine, you spend X dollars more a month on craft products than if you don't get the magazine. So guess what? We should still do the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to start thinking that way. Like if, if somebody subscribes to our video series, do they spend more than people who don't get our video series? If you subscribe to our podcast, do they spend more with us than if they don't get our podcast? These are the things that I think we need to challenge ourselves to answer because then it will remove the fear and trepidation um, for attempting and then measuring the impact of things like this. And, and, and the last thing I should say about this is you can, you can distribute the risk by partnering with other people. And that's what brandscaping is about. You know, you don't have to take on the task yourself of building a content brand like this and thinking like a media company. You, you can mitigate the risk by saying, hey, look, you know, if you sell coffee machines and I sell coffee beans, wouldn't it be great if we got a bunch of coffee lovers to enjoy some content together every one mm-hmm. month? And hopefully your people who like our, our, your coffee machines will buy my beans and vice versa. That's what a brandscape is. Can we come together and agree that we can create some great content for an audience who's interested in what we have to say and the stories we have to tell? And at the end of the day, let's measure the impact for each of us. Yep, impact. And that's what Autodesk's Dusty DiMercurio and Stephanie Losi are all about. The pair of content marketing execs from the software giant joined me mid-year in 2020 to walk through the backstory and impact of the media publisher slash community they built called Redshift. You can check it out at redshift.autodesk.com. Redshift builds itself as the future of making. Just so you know, Autodesk makes software products and tools for the manufacturing, media, architecture, construction industries, just to name a few. It's a pretty tough task to find a thread that brings these disparate markets together under one media brand, so they wisely planted a flag around the future of making making the complex concept pretty simple. Let's revisit our conversation and go behind the curtain of how and why Redshift works for Autodesk. My sense for why that is at Autodesk is that, um, I mean, 
we a big part of our success with our customers is empowering them to tell stories mm -hmm. like we, like if you think about it right the, the ways that we empower the media and entertainment industry which is probably maybe the most obvious right is that that, that literally is their function they are storytellers so yeah, we have to be are. good storytellers <laughs> yeah we have to if we're going to engage storytellers we need right. to be darn good ourselves right, right? so that, so there's that but then there's also sort of even when you look at other sectors like you know manufacturing or media and entertainment uh, you know when you're when you're trying to sell a building mm -hmm. right you have to you have to design that building and you have to sell the client on the concept and mm -hmm. you know we we help our clients do that right we we help them you know create a 3d design put vr goggles on their client and walk them through a building that doesn't exist yet yeah right that that is in the ethos so this is we have to be good at that ourselves mm -hmm. because this is ultimately what our technology and our solutions are helping our customers do so i think within the ethos of the company the the recognition and the of the importance of storytelling and the role that it plays um is is inherent and so you know, I, I think there's that again, I think also from from my own experience at the company over, you know, eight plus years is that in the interactions that I've had with a lot of our, um, you know, people across the company, people at the at the super senior level, um, I, I've worked, you know, historically quite a bit with our now CEO who used to be our, our CMO um, and you know, they, they get it. They totally understand storytelling. And, and one of the other things is that like Redshift as a platform has become a, a storytelling platform for them. So mm -hmm. we sit down and we work with them and their bylines from our CEO that continue to publish on Redshift and, uh, and a lot of our other senior executives. So I think it's a combination of, you know, them understanding, like fundamentally understanding the importance of storytelling. And then also I think they, they enjoy being able to have platforms and things like Redshift to be able to tell stories as well as obviously, you know, getting up in front of our 10,000 person Autodesk University conference and telling, you know, more of an interactive uh, live story. Awesome. I, I, we'll start with, with Redshift. I was really impressed with it. Um, your, mm -hmm. your digital publishing presence and content marketing brand, uh, which cranks out relevant future trending topics about software and design for the various industries that we talked about. And you've got in-depth articles, video series, things like Inside the Design Mind. It's really fascinating and timely. Uh, everything I was on there you know, earlier this week, stories about 3D printing and apps and how students are fighting COVID-19 and the virus's impact on drone healthcare. Um, share the vision, Dusty, of Redshift and how it impacts Autodesk, if you could pull the curtain back for us. Sure. Yeah, uh, so I think, you know, I mean, you know, we think of Redshift as sort of an owned media um, platform within Autodesk. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's probably a little bit more, like I would describe it, maybe a little bit more journalism, a little bit less marketing. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, of course, it's, it's, it's a function of our brand and, our, and lives in our marketing organization. So, um, of course, there are you know, important sort of you know, core messages and themes um, behind the scenes that guide a lot of sort of the direction for the storytelling we do there. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the storytelling, you know, really comes, uh, it really helps um, sort of tell a larger narrative around what we believe is that um, you know the way that things are designed and made, um, regardless of whether you know it's in you know what, regardless of what sector or what it actually mm -hmm. is, um, we see the process of design and make um, really starting to converge, regardless of what what it is that you're trying to make. So whether it's a video game or a car or a building, um, the way that things get designed and made are are. Are, are really starting to converge and come together. And that's a lot of the storytelling that we do on Redshift. Um, you know, we tell, 
we tell stories through really through the eyes of like our customers. Our, our customers are amazing. Um, they, they do so many incredible things from like, as you mentioned, you know, you know, 3D printing organs using, you know, D- using DNA. I mean, there's all kinds of just super seemingly sci- uh, sci-fi things that are happening in the world um, that are, you know, that our customers are doing. Uh, and, and really, we use Redshift as a platform to help um, talk about sort of the future of, of design and make and how we see those things converging. And I think, you know, one thing that's really interesting and we, and we believe is something that's somewhat of a, a unique differentiator with Autodesk is that because we play in these, you know, very diverse sectors, um, we're, we're, we have a, we're in a position to be able to see the ways that things are designed and made really coming together. So, you know, I think many years ago, people maybe scratched their head and said, hmm, Autodesk is, you know, is uh, in the space of media and entertainment. What does that have to do with making buildings? Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that the way that buildings get designed and made today is actually using a lot of technology and VR and things like that. So, um, you know, Redshift really is a platform for us to, um, you know, to help help us talk about the future of design and make and um, really a, a big mechanism for the, the that story is is highlighting a lot of our interesting customers yeah i mean I, I i as a fellow content marketer i really admire and respect the way that you've you've it's it's really um from the outside looking in and you i'm sure you have better language than i'm going to use it it's just a forward-thinking approach to the design mindset right that that goes across the different industries in a way that doesn't seem forced right it really mm-hmm. seems future casting there's a lot of things on trends or um, and, and, and I love the relevancy of the content you're creating because, you know, if you we're recording this on, on May 29th and you're talking about, okay, inspired design and construction, you know, and, and topics that are top of mind of like, what does design in the future office look like, future buildings look like coming out of COVID-19? And there you are with content um, from experts on your team, your cl- uh, clients, et cetera. So it's, it's really... Uh, well thought out. And, and I'm curious, uh, Stephanie, we're going to get to you in a second, kind of the fresh set of eyes. How, um, how has this evolved, Dusty, in terms of how Redshift actually ties into the, the baseline business of Autodesk? If you could maybe connect mm-hmm. those two. Yeah, yeah. Um, good question. So, I mean, honestly, it's interesting, you know, the, the, so, so Redshift, actually the origin of it before it was called redshift it used to be um really it was a blog um that was focused on um connecting with small businesses mm-hmm. um it was called at the time it was called line shape space mm-hmm. um which i don't think many people got we were we thought we were being clever like line being one <laughs> dimension shape being two dimensions and then space being the third dimension and so anyways we, we thought it was a clever name but it was hard to say it was hard to write blah 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 but it, it started out really being a blog that was um, really trying to connect with um, small businesses, like very small businesses, like companies under sort of 20 in size. And um, and so, you know, when we started out, you know, it was very much, um, you know, just trying to connect with small businesses. I think historically Autodesk hadn't really done a ton to focus on very small businesses. Um, at the time, you know, we were you know mainly working on sort of larger accounts and enterprises and things like that. And um, but what happened was we went through a business model transition, right? We moved from you know selling software on in jewel cases on DVDs and CDs to mm-hmm. you know really being a, a platform based and subscription company, kind of similar to what we saw you know Adobe go through mm-hmm. um, years ago too. And um, you know when when we started to reach out and um, and connect with these small businesses, 
you know, our software all of a sudden became much more accessible because of our business model, right? The fact that you right. could essentially subscribe to a rent to rent software rather than having to pay for it up front. Um, so that was that was the origin of it. But what happened was, you know, we created this content that was really designed to engage small businesses, and we found that our, our like really our enterprise accounts were consuming it and really enjoying it. Mm. Um, and, you know, over time, what we decided to do was we, we found that the content was resonating across the board. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we decided like, Hey, let's, let's, let's blow this thing up and actually make it, um, you know, a more broad storytelling mechanism um, that, you know, again, helps us articulate our vision for where we see, you know, the future of architecture, engineering, and construction, where do we see the future of manufacturing going and, and media and entertainment? And so for us, it became a mechanism for telling that story and telling it in a way that, you know, didn't feel like there were a lot of strings attached. You know, mm -hmm. there wasn't going to be a lot of e emails coming from us, you know, hey, buy, buy our stuff. Um, and so it was it was kind of interesting, you know, when we when we started, I, I always had this joke that, you know, I, I hired a, a journalist really to come in and, and start working with me on that project originally. And somebody asked me, what, you know, why would you pick a journalist? And I said, because I think it's going to be easier for me to teach a journalist how to be a marketer than it is for me to teach a marketer how to be a journalist. As the futurist on this podcast, I couldn't resist asking how the pandemic will impact their approach. Stephanie Losi nailed this, as you'd expect the future of makers to do. Well, you know, it's funny because it, it really is, ex I think it's accelerating what was already going to happen to all of us that was kind of inching its way forward and we weren't quite accepting it in the business world, which is to say, here we are all holed up watching Netflix and, you know, binging everything. And what happens? You go onto Netflix and it says, hi, Stephanie, last night you mm -hmm. finished Dead to Me. We think you would oh, like uh, Homecoming. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I won't let them off the hook, nor will you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we expect them to know what we did yesterday and what we are going to, you know, and tell us what we should do tomorrow. And brands have not quite gotten there yet, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you go on to Redshift or any of the online magazines that any of us has launched, it's not going to say, hey, ex you know, CEO, you read, you know, this mm -hmm. executive's thought leadership yesterday. We think you'd like to attend this webinar. And now is the time. It really should. And so that's that's what I've come to join Dusty in doing. I mean, in my previous roles, I've always launched the editorial content function that did not exist. And what I became interested in is what would it be like to join a team like Dusty's where a company has not, you know, has continued to invest in content. This, so my proposition would not be to convince them, <laughs> you know, of the value of content. I'm so over it. I'm so over yeah. it. I'm so delighted to be here. I can't even tell you. Isn't that it's nice? fabulous. Oh, God. And, and, you know, Dusty and I have known about each other for years. When uh, this role was um, posted and I uh, and I thought about it, I back channeled to somebody who was the same person that Dusty back channeled to, <laughs> to, to talk about, you know, whether this role might be a good fit for me. So so I'm here to uh, launch a global dedicated account based marketing content team which is to say to achieve that Netflix level, or at least that's what we hope someday mm -hmm. of, you know, KYC, uh, know your customer where you are known by Autodesk when you come back and we can uh, show you the next piece of content that might help you do your job and build a relationship between us and possibly, you know, transmit the information that Autodesk as a company can be a partner to your company and not just the AutoCAD company. 
Our final excerpt is from late 2020 with Andrew Bolton, the chief customer officer for Notch, a content measurement platform that has an excellent content marketing hub called Pros and Content. It's a great example of building a community through content that can be a logical front porch to your business. However, and bear with me, this can get a bit meta since the actual topic is content marketing. So we're gonna talk about content marketing of content marketing for a content marketing measurement product. If you're still with me, let's dig in with Andrew on the origin story and evolution. Notch itself uh, has been around for about six, six and a half years or so. Um, and at its core, we're a technology company. We sell software to large brands to help them measure and optimize and impact the, the outcomes of their content programs. And so we've been in market um, working with, you know, big, well-known brands, everything from a Salesforce to a Ford to a J.P. Morgan Chase to a City. you know, the list goes on. Um, and we really had the privilege of working with some of the best content leaders and the best content minds in the industry. Um, and as we you know, went through our journey as a company and grew, you know, I joined about four and a half years ago and we had about nine people at the time and now hmm. we're, we're north of 70. As we grew, we recognized I would say probably about two years ago that we weren't doing a, a very good job of eating our own dog food as it came <laughs> to using content as a means to engage people. And so we were so caught up with, you know, working with our clients and making them successful. We got to a point where all of a sudden we're like, well, man, we need to be doing this ourselves. And so we began dipping our toe in the water um, with our new head of marketing that just come on board. Um, and started you know, building out some just basic blog content um, for back, lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. um, we were also lucky enough to, um, at the time, have an in-person conference um, that was very successful and we had some really great speakers and I gave us some video content so we began posting that. And so it began to just kind of pick up uh, steam as we uh, went through time. Um, and then uh, there was a bit of an inflection point when our uh, founder and CEO, uh, Anda Ganska, she was invited to be on a podcast called Atlandia, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I don't know if you're familiar. Um, if you're not, I would check it out. Mm -hmm. um, great, great um, podcast um, with some, some you know, awesome marketing uh, chops behind it. And uh, she was on the podcast, the first podcast that she'd ever done. Um, and she really enjoyed the experience. And literally within 24 hours, she was getting DMs on Twitter from people who had heard it once it had gone live. Um, saying this is awesome, like, I want to learn more about your company, so on and so forth. And we actually, you know, closed two or three, you know, deals basically just off of that exposure on Atlandia. Wow. And so uh, it really opened her eyes not only to the power of podcasts and the means to, uh, to, to get different voices involved in what we were doing, but also a way to engage both clients as well as potential clients or even just people that we respect in the industry. Um, engage them in a way and bring them into a community around Notch that really helps um, the brand. And so Pros and Content um, has been built to essentially be the content hub that is attached to Notch, the technology company, um, where we look to highlight you know, all things content. So very meta in many ways, mm -hmm. um, but something that we found to be you know, very powerful. If you're looking for one key trend that I've been digging into as we slide into 2021, it's the nuance of the content hub, both conceptually and tactically. Andrew explains. There's one that jumps out, I think, um, as, as the biggest and I think, think the most uh, powerful trend. 
And that really is this idea of building out um, content centers of excellence, whereby you have a team that is responsible for content across the organization, whether mm-hmm. that be marketing content, uh, PR and comms content, employee communications content, investor content, mm-hmm. owned content, paid content, social content. There's so many different types of content that exist out there. And we see in a lot of organizations where even within one of those disciplines like marketing, there might be five to 10 different silos and teams creating content and there isn't any cross communication between them. And what you end up with is uh, a very kind of like non sequitorial uh, experience for, for a consumer where maybe they engage with content for a brand out on a paid publisher site, like, you know, custom content. And they're like, Oh, that's interesting. And they get driven back through, you know, a, a call to action to the own site. But when they arrive, it's a completely different look, feel, um, Tone of voice, uh, voice yep. exactly. Uh, and this this uh, idea that uh, content has to live in its swim lanes, I think, is 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 archaic at this point. Um, and so you look at some brands like Bank of America. John von Brockle there has done an amazing job of building a content center of excellence that really touches all the different content initiatives throughout the firm um, and make sure that there is a singular voice and you know connective tissue between them all and i think that's just going to get more and more important um, you know especially now where again digital content is a way of reaching people in their homes getting them interested building an audience um, y- you want to make sure that there's that uh, that universal tone across the board so that's the biggest thing that jumps out to me Words to live by from Andrew Bolton. And now I'm off to track down John at Bank of America. So thanks for listening. I'm here to serve you, our growing community of content execs, makers, and doers. So please, I want to hear your feedback. Give me your guest pitches. Connect with me on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman, J-A-Y-S-H-A-R-M-A-N. Ping me on LinkedIn or visit our content hub. See what I did there? At teamworksmedia.com. Peace.